Oh, hello, folks. Uh, thanks so much for coming back. Welcome to Sound Perspective. I'm your host, Alfie Faber. I'm a soundie and filmmaker in sunny Sydney, Australia. I love film, I love sound, so here's a little podcast where I chat to people a lot more talented than me about how they do those things that they do really well. Uh, sorry that I haven't released anything in a while. It's the, the, the response has been furious. I've been getting hundreds of emails from the fans demanding content. Alfie, when's the next episode coming out? When... When are we getting more content? We want it. We want more. Um, sorry, in all seriousness, it's difficult to get interviews over the Christmas season. And also, I'm about to get married in under a month. So, you know, that takes up, like, all of my time. In the meantime, here's some bonus behind-the-scenes uh, uh, DVDs, extras, content. Uh, one of the interviews I did for episode one of the podcast about Mad Max... Wayne Pashley, Darren Pasquill, and Andrew Miller all work at Big Bang Sound Design in Sydney, one of the big dogs in the Sydney game. They've done films such as The Great Gatsby, Happy Feet, Gods of Egypt, Babe, uh, heaps of good stuff, and of course, Mad Max Fury Road. On that film, Wayne was sound editor and sound re-recording mixer. Andrew was sound effects editor, and Darren was assistant sound editor. I've talked enough about how good Fury Road is, so whatever, let's just get on into the interview. Here they are, have a good one. Um, how I got into sound? Well, uh, for uh, the sort of the, the shortened version of it, I guess, was um, when I was growing up, I always wanted to work in film, and I was I had no idea that sound and picture were two separate entities in filmmaking. Uh, and it wasn't until I saw Star Wars on the big screen in 1977 that I thought there must be a job for somebody who makes these sound effects because that's clearly not shot on the day. Um, so from there, I started to investigate what, um, what sound meant in film and I saw a film called Once Upon a Time in the West by Sergio Leone, where the opening of the film is completely sound-driven, no music whatsoever. And it's one of the, 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 one of the most incredible sound design uh, pieces of cinema I've ever seen. And that got me interested in sound and story and filmmaking. Uh, I then started, I was lucky enough to start at the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, and I went into, at the time, into neg cutting. So we were all on film at that point. From neg cutting, uh, went into sound editing uh, on a lot of the miniseries that the ABC were doing at that time. And uh, I couldn't believe what I was uh, involved in now with um, cutting 16 millimeter. Um, with splices and synchronizers and all that stuff, trim bins of um, brown magnetic tape, which was carrying not only the dialogues, of course, and all the sound effects, atmospherics and music. And uh, that led me into, into sound as a career because I could see the power of, of uh, what it could do in storytelling. So from there, uh, never looked back, and here we are today. Um, I have always been a major film buff. Like, I love movies and, you know, have always, yeah, really enjoyed 
um, that and and music come into music as well. And I uh, did a general BA course at Deakin University, which was majoring in music and media. And uh, from that, I realised that sound was really where you know my heart was at. I thought it might be music. I was kind of leaning more towards that when I started, but um, as I got more into it, I realised that yeah, I just I love the power of sound. Um, so then I looked into doing a more specific course, which took me to afters, and I did a, a, a masters at afters in sound. And while I was there, I was lucky enough to do some internships and met some people there. Sort of yeah, gained contacts through that. And um, once I'd finished my course, I was you know lucky enough to. Uh, have made a contact who worked with Wayne before and you know she in organized for us to meet up and yeah so then I met with Wayne and I've been working with Wayne at Big Bang for about 14 years now so yeah, watch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, Andrew again hi uh I grew up in a theatre family, so my dad was a theatre producer for ages, and I kind of grew up in that kind of world, in different, like backstage and stuff like that, just helping out as a, like a young kid and all that kind of stuff. And so I got this idea of this other type of sort of area of entertainment and kind of like another like a dull job, if you know what I mean. It was very exciting and stuff like that. And so I guess growing up with that, I always had that kind of on my in the back of my head as like a you know, a lot of my friends like, I'm going to be a mechanic or, I don't know, finance kind of person. I was like, there's this other whole area, which is sort of something that you never get to have to work on like a dull desk job or work on the same thing necessarily every day kind of thing. Uh, but then I got into music and playing um, piano and stuff like that and jazz and funk bands, which is funny to say now. It's kind of, that's all kind of disappeared, but... Um, yeah, and then sort of just sort of followed that after high school a bit and was introduced to sort of the post-production sort of side of stuff through music. Um, I went, I, I started in uh, North Sydney TAFE doing a, like a screen certificate and all that kind of stuff and moved on to like musical um, diplomas and stuff like that, which then led me into afters again, like Darren, but I went into the location recording sort of stream and did that uh, for a year and got a GD. And then straight after that, um, they accepted me to do the Masters in Sound Design, I think it was called at the time. Uh, it was just two years. And at the end of that, I actually um, got an opportunity through one of the um, outside industry people they brought in to teach us. I think it was Foley. I think it was Angus Robertson. He kind of helped me get on to um, Australia, which is the first time I met Wayne and Darren, um, working for Atlab at the time in the back room, just doing DVD backups of the daily mixes and stuff like that. And so then with um, yeah, with, with getting to meet Darren and Wayne, I sort of was like, who are these people? Because this is a phenomenal kind of sound, and I hadn't kind of come across that type of thing before. Like I was doing sound posts and stuff at afters, and you get an idea of like this is how you do basic layups and all that kind of stuff and all of a sudden I'm in on at the time I think the biggest film Australia had ever had and listening to this stuff coming out of just like just this just this beautiful I don't know I can't describe it. it was very it was very weird being in like a big mixing room with like these people who had just created this masterpiece on the screen 
And so I, and then it was like I couldn't fault a thing. The dialogues were perfect. The mixing was amazing. Everything was just sitting there. It was just very magical kind of thing. So you're in there every day, and I thought this is this this sort of uh, I guess industry is the only place I've ever known where you can get that feeling. Like, and you can sit in these rooms and these big mixed rooms at the end of like working very hard, long jobs, and listen to what you've all as a team sort of made. And I'm, I'm sure like builders and stuff sit back and look at those, the houses and stuff and go, look what we did as a team, but not like sound pulling things literally out of air and then sitting up there and telling a story and all that kind of stuff. It's, it's incredible. So that's kind of what really hooked me into it. And I was lucky because I made friends with Darren and she totally got me a job here. So <laughs> I've always, uh, yeah, totally. Yeah. She just, she, I like, dude, get this guy Wayne. Yeah. Right. So yeah, yeah, that's how it all went from my memory. Is that right? Yep, they're all nodding. Cool. <laughs> it sounds like a couple of you started in music or you had a music background. Um, what kind of led you to screen sound as opposed to just music or audio engineering? Was there something special to you about um, the combination of sound and picture? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I remember this was like you know, when I was back at school and one of the teachers had put together this slideshow of our year group together and, you know, he he was asking for us to help put, you know, some music on it. And um, so as, as a group, we all kind of sat down and started putting music on top of this thing and I was just kind of amazed at that point. I was just like, wow, this actually really creates a feeling for this. Like it it's really helping, you know, bring back these memories in a really, you know, amazing way. And I, I went home and I started playing around with the music and putting different music on it and seeing how that would affect the mood of it or whatever. And, I, you know, I, as I was doing it, my mum said to me, you know, people do that for a living. And I was blown away. Like, I was just like, wow, this is amazing. So I sort of came at it from, oh, music can really kind of help with the emotion and, and and everything that sort of comes through in a film. So I sort of came at it thinking that that's what I was going to do. But when I got to, um, to Deakin and I was working on a project there, I was kind of assigned to the sound <clears throat> section, not so much the music. And, you know, I thought, oh, well, this, this is good. And as I was doing it as well, I was blown away by how you could really, yeah, a- affect what drew your attention to a certain, you know, action that was happening or how you could clean up the dialogue so people could, you know, hear it or change the dialogue so you could, you know, change the performance and all that sort of subtle manipulation that you could do that could really advance, you know, what the filmmaker's going for. And so that's sort of where I sort of, yeah, kind of got the the love for doing that and the subtlety of it, I guess. Well, you see, you guys came up in a, in a world where computers were every day. Um, when, uh, just as a boring story, uh, whilst at high school, doing the high school certificate, I was doing two-unit music. And uh, part of that um, requirement for your exa- examination was to do a performance, and like live, to the examiners. And um, to let you know what a sort of tragic I was, um, I took, even then, the concept of uh, silent film 
and did a music track to it, like in the old days where you had an organist or a piano player basically playing the action, the emotion, the, uh, uh, the comedy, if you like, to Silent Picture. So for my major work, I ran a uh, black and white Laurel and Hardy sketch that went for five minutes and had an upright piano and attached to the piano were clown horns, triangles, tambourines, anything that I could uh, follow the action because it was a comedy and basically started playing and I'm sure the examiners at that time had never seen anything quite so ridiculous <laughs> and I kind of figured even back then there you go that was the beginning of like the understanding of like how music and film and stuff that's that sort of you know that was a question again. Sorry, I just got taken away. I'm not. I guess for me, it was a little bit different. It was kind of um, mine was a need to because because I thought let's put it this way: these uh, this day, uh, the more sound I do, the less I play music. And back then, I knew that was that's an often something that people people have. And if you do it for a job, you don't do it. You end up not really doing it for yourself. And so I went into the location kind of. Um, sort of area I started involving myself in that doing the thing at arts and stuff and I was like okay this is this is it was the technical side of it that I loved I mean the stuff that they have to deal with on set whether it's like you know bad weather or you shoot next to a freeway or it's rain machines or it's wind machines or um, you know um, not being able to get a mic in an optimal position and how do you combat that they love that that was just like this giant puzzle which I was just like this is phenomenal and I get to do this every day and you know if i can if i can get something that's usable that's just the best but if i can't then i've tried my best and everyone i've made the notes everyone knows what i've tried um but then it sort of became an, an a kind of like need inside me to understand really what happens after this because i was like how do how do, can i do this role effectively if i don't really understand what they do with it because like it wasn't a kind of like oh then they take it into this stuff and i'm like what but what what happens to it and then it was sort of like, well, if it's not, if I'm not recording dialogue, what should I be recording in this scene? What is useful what kind of stuff? And then that kind of just opened up this world. And I was like, okay, the post side started speaking to me more than location because of the musical stuff I'd done with. I kind of was okay at Pro Tools. I kind of got, understood how to record stuff. Um, I used to about mics and stuff because location taught me about microphones and placement, all that stuff like crazy, um, you know, and and how to manage those types of things as well from location because like often if you've got you know 10 radios out and a couple of booms how do you manage that in a way it's useful stuff so going into post was then like this creative side was able to come out rather than just a pure technical but the technical side's still there if you want to delve into it uh, which i love that's like one of the big kicks i get out of doing post is just the pure technical technicality of it um but then um then I guess through musical training and your experience in music, you, you develop an ear for certain things. And um, after a while, I just didn't care if I did the music stuff anymore because it was this other side of things just like you can build, like it's possible given enough time for one person to build an entire soundtrack in a film and the music if they want, given enough time. But my thing is it won't sound as good, I think, unless you're in a team. If, if you're in a team... 
Um, and that's the thing that excites me most now is I know what I can do, but I'm always very, very excited to hear what the other guys on the team do because that will often go, I did not see that coming or I didn't think of that. And going, oh, that's... And then you get to talk to them and go, how the hell did you do that? That's what I love about Post. I love the team environment um, just as much as doing it. I mean, this, some of the stuff that guys here come up with and in a very, sometimes in crazy amounts of time where you've got a surprise um, screening that they need you to do 10 minutes and it needs to be almost finished quality 10 minutes and you've got three days and you're like, well, no sleep. But then everyone else around you is doing is, is moving to that same goal. That's the best. That's, that's why I do it. Well, I it's also it. not dissimilar to uh, music anyway uh, because once you have the right team members around you and you're working to everybody's strengths and, and you know, prowess, what happens is it's like an orchestra in itself. So when you come to, to creating a sequence, a scene, whether it's, you know, uh, something highly emotional or whether it's action or whatever, once all the team members have got their certain aspects of the orchestra, if you like, and it all comes together, it is not dissimilar to putting a symphony together, but with sound. So I think that's uh, that's the that's where it gets real fun, yeah. you know. So yeah, that's that's when the crazy you, just, mm. you have this stuff come in and you just like like because if you're in the same building, it, uh, you can kind of hear bits of it, but you don't hear like all of it. You hear it through the wall or something as you're working. But then, like when it's all pre-dubbed and it, you sit down, you hear it all to, in together on a on a mixing stage for the first time, and sometimes you're like. And you have to turn to that whoever did it and go, "How did you do that? Or where did you come up with that idea? Or something like that." That's just the best. That's that's so rewarding. The story side of film has the director. The like the visual side has the DOP. Do you think that um, sound, especially post sound, has a tradition of being far more team focus and less kind of led by one person? I think well, from my, because I'm not what you would call in the position of being that leading voice, from my position, what I see is you you, you watch a film, most of the time, hopefully you get notes from the director about what they want or what they're thinking or you get a sense from the, the guide track about what's how to play it or something like that. Um, then as a team, you'll sit down and you'll go, right, how do you tackle this? And that's usually where Wayne will step in and go and he'll sit us in this very room and go, all right, let's watch this scene or let's watch this 20 minutes full and just watch it. No one, no one look at it. No one think, you know, put your hand up to, to claim anything. Yet. Just, just watch it. And then we'll go back and watch it again and we'll start going, who wants to do what? Uh, that kind of thing, which is really cool. Well, I think also at that point, you know, you've got to start to, to drive as a, as a head of a department, if you like, you know, it's um, you know, like a director of photography um, or whether it's head of casting, whether it's head of production design or whatever it is, you know, it's as a free-for-all, it gets really tricky. You do need a voice to help direct the filmmaker's vision. So I think that that's just a natural thing. Uh, I'm very much uh, open to all uh, comments of the team because I trust them so much. And I think that... The first thing that really you're trying to find is is why in any given circumstance is that character doing what they're doing 
why is that shot in the film? There has to be a reason, and you've got to find that reason, because just arbitrary shots for whatever reason, for, for whatever purpose, is, is, is never... Yeah, unless you're working on a bad film that haven't thought about it. But everything that is in a film has a reason to be there. So the first step, really, for me, is to look at character, number one, because it's human storytelling. And so dialogue is primacy always, because that's how you've attracted the cast from the script. That's why, you know, a sound recordist on set, their primary job is capture that dialogue. Don't worry about anything else. If you can get the door open and close and the car pass, and that's fabulous. But always, always, always go for dialogue. Because that's where the subtlety and intent of the story is in the first place. So I always look at character, and then I look at overall thematic reasons for the story itself. And through theme and through character, you can start to find the sonic interpretation that hopefully will lead to you know, uh, helping the story through and uh, guiding the audience uh, to to the, the the whole reason why it's been made in the first place. So I think that in terms of um, uh, uh, hierarchical situations and and that sort of thing, a director does need one person to go to because a director has so many things going on in post production, whether it's um, whether it's grading, whether it's uh, working with the composer on the music, whether it's working with the sound people, recording ADR with the actors, whether it's marketing or fine cutting the film in the end. There's so much going on. To have a disparate bunch of a whole of a lot of people that, you know, it, it becomes very, very messy. So end of the day, you do need a sense of structure, you know, and, the, and really, really filmmaking in itself is uh, very much... Um, a dictatorship at the top of the tree, you know, that's how it has to work. It is a single voice and we try to interpret that voice and impart, you know, the the rest of the sound design, if you like, you know, to the rest of the team. Yeah, I think that's what, where I was trying to go before was like, um, as an editor, there is so much you have to focus on um, technically, logistically, um, time management kind of wise is if you didn't have someone uh, who is sort of, what's the word, sort of like interpreting sometimes what comes from the director in a, in a, in a fashion that's actually kind of like a quick, useful way of interpreting for us. Um, that gets, it can get quite messy where it can be a bit of a gray area where, because I think as well, sounds like one of those things that like if you see a picture and it looks, uh, you know, it doesn't look what the, the color balances off. You can say it looks too blue or something like that. But with sound, I think it's hard to go for a director to go. It does. It sounds, uh, you know, dirty or muddy or there's all these different. There's this this vernacular with sound that's very personal to everyone. And if you have a point person who has worked with a director a lot before, they decipher that, and then they can come to you and tell you in your language or within the groups, the team's language, how to get around this thing or, or, or how to approach something um, probably in a more relevant way than sometimes like a director's can, we've found can be a little vague sometimes or super specific as well. And um, it's good to have Wayne in this case to sort of be a buffer of that information and, and 
then be able to relate to a team in a way that we all kind of get and go, okay, I get what the story point yeah. is or the way it talks. Sound is very, very difficult to articulate. Yeah. Very difficult. And, uh, uh, hey, we work in sound and we also have trouble articulating it to each other. you got new, new members of the team. It's tricky. Someone like Darren, Andrew, Fabian Sangiorgio, Rick Lyle, um, all the team members that we've had here as a, as a bit of a you know, a team mentality, we, you know, we've ended up by coming up with a shorthand, if you like, because we know each other's tastes. And when you sort of talk about something, like let's say it's dialogues, I know that Darren and I are completely on par. We know exactly where we're heading with this. And when things need help, do we bring them in for ADR? Can we clean that up? What's not working with this performance? How do we get that over the line and help the director to see a vision on that stuff. Um, when I talk to someone like Darren in terms, in terms of an audience perspective on, on characterization and storytelling, Darren is, is a right hand to me because if she feels the same way that I'm starting to feel, I know we're on the right track. So generally speaking, what we do throughout a post-production process is uh, Darren and I will follow the dialogues as a, as a concept, as the largest concept, which means following through the re-recording, uh, if there's going to be any re-recording, and generally there would generally be a, a minimum of about 40% of the film or even more. Um, so what happens there is during the post-production process, if you're doing the recording with the cast members, with the director, throughout that post-production process, you're getting immediate feedback because you're in the same room and it's the best time to start to delve into what the filmmaker is actually thinking, particularly with the cast. You're taking that information and disseminating it to not only the dialogue, the sound effects, the backgrounds being the atmospherics, where the mu then you start talking to the music as well. You start talking to the composer, but also even to the crowds, even to loop group. Because crowds are in a highly emotive thing. When you, when you hear crowds coming over a hill in something like uh, Braveheart, for example, and you hear that marauding horde coming over, it, it's an emotional response. It's sort of frightening, or whatever it's going to be, whatever. So crowds have an equal measure in, in the power of, 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 of storytelling and, and emotional uh, engagement. So that's, that's sort of very important to me is to, that's when you get the best time with the director throughout the post-production process. And that's when you learn and start to suck brains, if you like, and then you start to push it out. I can see where this is going now. If you may have missed it off the script or you may have missed it on your first couple of viewings of, the, of, the, of where of the cut is at at that point, the picture edit, um, this is when you start to, to get feedback. And hopefully via that, by the time you hit the mix and you hit the final mix where you've got all the filmmakers together and the producers and everybody, you're in a good, you're in a good position, you know, and uh, you're not, hopefully not going to completely miss the mark. So that's, that, that to me is the time to do it, you know, is um, to get that sort of feedback. And you start at the um, you start by at the script stage as well. Like I've seen your scripts with yeah. notes and stuff on it, and like yeah. on Gatsby, we like we knew we were on that one for long enough for all of us to read that read the book. Well, and I read that, the book. Yeah, yeah, I read the book of Gatsby five times prior to starting, 
and it's a small book, <laughs> um, but uh, it was, uh, it's an extraordinary book. And then, of course, the script uh, was equally extraordinary. Uh, I made uh, countless notes, uh, both on the book and on the script. And, and, and uh, the fascinating uh, uh, opening line from Baz Luhrmann at that time for a directive, a sound design directive, was protect Fitzgerald. Simple as that. So you're protecting the prose itself, F. Scott Fitzgerald. And then from that, everything made sense. Okay, there's the movie and the interpretation of this novel. And it's all there. It's all in the book. And so that's when you start to pull stuff. Not dissimilar to Mad Max. Uh, the script of Mad Max, uh, Darren and I combed that. The, the script was basically a graphic novel. It was all storyboards. There was a little bit of interpretive dialogue that was kind of plotted in and out along the way, but effectively it was a graphic novel. From that, those images that Mark Sexton and the team uh, who did the storyboards, from that it was like reading a, a book anyway and, and you, could, you could feel it from those images where this was going to go. You know, or where you would like it to go in your own mind, and hopefully, having worked with George many, many years, you know, we go back thirty years now. Um, you know, I had a pretty good idea what George is going to be looking for. Yeah, you were able to be involved in Fury Road from pre-production. Um, when you guys looked at the storyboard, did you instantly start having ideas? Was it like working on it from the start? Well, well, I'll just, just quickly go back uh, to 2006, uh, actually 2005. Um, that was the time when Happy Feet uh, was also in production and Mad Max was going to start. So I started on the film way back then. And at that point, George had said to me that this film will have no music at all. So from that, that was very exciting. And so uh, we knew that um, uh, he was about to shoot in, um, up in Broken Hill and all was going to be fine. And, but in the meantime, while that was all getting under development, we were also on happy feet. So um, throughout that process, I started to think about what does that mean that the music of the film is going to come from the vehicles. So we started doing a few tests on getting bassoons with broken reeds for exhaust pipes and starting to look at drums and, and, get, and looking at great drummers that could be able to do tappets inside an engine. All these sort of things, I started, you know, the mind starts going crazy. So you start to, so that was a, that was a huge amount of excitement there. When we um, actually got onto the movie, um, uh, things had changed and evolved because of various delays in the shoot and by the time it started to pull up. I had some uh, very early meetings about the sound recording, uh, uh, about whether we were able to or whether we thought it was going to be possible to record the dialogue on location um, and save the production dialogue as opposed to ADR. I could not see a way around it because it was travelling on the back of a vehicle in the open air in many cases. So there was those sort of meetings that took place. Um, and, and very early on I started seeing all the storyboards up around George's office at, at his company uh, at the Metro Theatre and the 
uh, all the models started to come in and looking at what the production designers were doing. I went to many meetings about the costumes and stuff like that. Also, in that early time, um, we decided to go into the Kennedy Miller archives with the help of um, incredible producer Doug Mitchell, who is has been with Kennedy Miller for forever, and and because it's called Kennedy Miller Mitchell, uh, but Doug Mitchell was a great um, uh, help. He was a, it was a great you know fan in in looking at the idea of of taking a, a bit of a, a retro approach as well in the idea to make it a, a little bit of a homage to Byron Kennedy, who passed away um, uh, in, during Mad Max 2. So we went into the archives. We found all the old quarter-inch tapes that were, that were recorded back in the 70s, and uh, we had the tapes baked because they were going to fall apart or the oxide was about to fall off. We got ourselves um, a decent reel-to-reel recorder, and we digitized everything. So that material for in there, we found the sound of the interceptor, the original interceptor. We found uh, uh, many wild tracks of uh, when Mel Gibson was playing Mad Max, his leather jacket, a whole bunch of stuff from the uh, sawn-off shotguns to the motorbikes to the various other cars. So having uh, collected that as a library which is now uh, completely uh, digitized and safe for all the rest of eternity, we started to t- look at that library and go, okay, how can we inject this material into the sound effects as well, into the new movie? It's as a subtle concept, but it's now there is a, a vein going through that film, which is of old. You know, um, Not many people know that that is in there, and part of the process from all the new material. But those sort of concepts were building from very early on, you know. Uh, and I've forgotten the actual question, but I think, and then by the time we, <laughs> by the time we, we uh, got onto the film proper, uh, using those storyboards and having, and Darren was also on Happy Feet and we were talking about this a lot, that's when we started to delve into the storyboards and break them down. Uh, into into clear storytelling and what is the potential of the dialogues, what is the potential of the crowds, the war boys and everything else, and, and what is it going to take to to inject a human spirit into this film that is all, at, to all intent and purpose, it looks like a whole bunch of vehicles with a lot of rust and a lot of dust and sand. How are we going to get human behaviour into this film? Not only in clear um, storytelling um, uh, dialogue, but also in behavioural dialogue as well, whether it's non-English grunting and, you know, and, and war cries and stuff like that. How can we now add a human element to this? So that was quite a big job to build the dialogue uh, concept and the, and the workload that was ahead of us. And um, having several meetings with George and Margaret Sixel about this, um, uh, they were right on board to to getting all the cast in, and let's 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 go for it. Once the movie had been shot and edited and everything, and we were going through and queuing all of the ADR and crowds and stuff that needed to be recorded, we also had that original s- sort of storyboards with us while we were doing that, so that any notes that we'd made during that initial process. 
um, we'd sort of get reminded of if, you know, if we'd sort of forgotten. So you could get to, you know, um, certain parts of the film where you, you know, saw the storyboard, which, you know, looked like what was on the screen and you'd written something about, you know, one of the characters in the, you know, in the back of the truck or whatever that you're just like, oh, yeah, it'd be good to get a you know, something from them or hear a cry from outside or, you know, just stuff from, yeah, that original concept that we could bring back if it hadn't been captured sort of on the day that we could somehow bring that back into... And George was very open to yeah. to a lot of these ideas, whether they made it in the final film or not, but he was very, very open to trying to trying any of these ideas and, and capturing it while we were there, uh, like in, in an ADR sense. It was, it was fantastic. Yeah, Very collaborative yeah. in that, that regard. Yeah. yeah. Like get it, see if it works. If it does, great. If it doesn't, you know, we can drop it. It's, you know, mm. it's all material that we can try and experiment with, you know, which is exciting. Yeah. That's cool. That um, goes into the next one for all of you. What was, what's George, what was George Miller like to work with as a director? He's unlike any other director I've worked with, uh, mainly because, um, like I was saying before, Wayne's usually for for, for effects is or for the rest of the team's quite a good a buffer between direct sort of contact with the director because, um, like you say, it's good for that one point person to be across um, any concepts and stuff like that, so he can understand how that affects actually everyone doing their bit. As well as then, how do you address that later in a final mix? If it's if it's something that rolls into a final mix scenario where it has to be done there, um, but he was he was kind of amazing actually, really, because he, he had such he had such a strong uh, momentum for it. Like he knew exactly where he needed to get it. He needed to. I mean, it wasn't so much like do this type of sound here, but it was very much like this point in time in this point in the film that sound effect is the most important sound effect for me at that one particular point and then he was very conscious like and then once that's done this next part is and he would he you would roll through um footage with him and he would film it or give you voice notes and send it directly to you or it would go through wayne and then he'd go up because george might not be sure who's doing a particular vehicle at that time and wayne would then pass it on but he would either give you, like, would sit in front of a camera with a TV behind him and tell you, Andrew, at this point, I'm thinking that, you know, we've just come from, you know, this vehicle close up and now this part's all about the shotgun getting pointed at Nux or something like that. And I need to hear the thumbs on the trigger. I need to hear all this. And you're like, he's on a war rig and it's doing 100 k's an hour in desert and there's all these cars around but okay like that, that, that's what he needs and you go i get it from that story point because like the same before it's not it's not about cars it's about humans and it's about threat and all that kind of stuff especially with some elements and george is just so on top of what he needs wanted to hear at that point to get whatever george was in his head across for um story or intent that kind of stuff uh, which was I've never never had that before, and it was amazing. It was something that was like you absolutely unique way of working, and um, it, I found it like at times it was like crazy because you'd be getting um, voicemails or videos at like all times, pardon me, of the night, um, and but then you'd watch it and you go, okay, like 
okay, I can't. I think I get it. I get what you, I get what you need. And then you'd you'd be able to hopefully do that and send it, and he would hear it. And he'd be. And the crazy thing is, like he would send you uh, like really specific notes. You'd do the specific notes, and then in the next screening in a few days or a week later, he'd remember everything you told everyone, and he'd go, "Awesome, you guys did it. You did every note." Or he goes, "You guys couldn't didn't quite do this note right," and he would tell you, "Can you work, rework that bit or change that bit?" Or, or I don't. Or sometimes you know, I don't even may particularly like that sound can you really do it with something different which is you know that's part of the job but a very very interesting way of working like that it's very cool Darren now I've got your cough um yeah no he he's so across everything and just has you know can hold all this knowledge in his brain so that you know he comes up with the most incredible amount of detail that you know um that is really helpful for us. He's able to kind of, you know, pinpoint what he needs. And um, the the other thing, like with with dialogues, um, he's he's also very particular with with that as well. And because we'd worked with him on Happy Feet, um, we kind of knew how deep he goes into that. So um, on Happy Feet we had to sort of prep all the material so that he could listen to each take and, you know, and make his own notes as he went through and, you know, construct the performance and stuff through that that way. He's really, he gets right in there and really focuses. And because we knew that he was like that on, on the Happy Feats, we did the same thing with the ADR on this one um, where, yeah, we... Um, went in and recorded with the actors and then we'd have to prep all the ADR. He'd sort of give us, you know, kind of direction on where to go and, you know, you'd cut a few, you know, um, a few takes or a few versions of it and he'd listen and then he'd sort of pick and choose from that or if he still wasn't quite happy with something, he'd go in and listen to all the takes and, um, yeah, very meticulous. Like, just like he is with the picture, he's meticulous with sound, so... Um, yeah, and it's amazing because, yeah, like Miller said, like the um, when he sort of says, oh, you know, that that is really important, you're sitting there just going, really? Sometimes you're just like, but how are we going to – how how is that meant to play above all of that? But then when, when it's all together and playing, you just go, well, that's why you're George Miller. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. You go, and even as a sandwich, you go, okay, that's, that's an odd decision. And then you hear it later and you go, oh, yeah, no, that makes sense, cool. Because he's because he's obviously got in his head. He's probably told music something in that moment as well to leave room or to do whatever he needs. But yeah, well, it was a tough mixing job, I bet. <laughs> Specifically for Andrew, um, what were some of the most memorable effects that you had to design? Was there anything that was like especially difficult? I, it, w- once you get on a roll it's it's not too bad but often it's sort of the, it's often the f- those first few effects um that sort of set you up or a character up for the rest of the film that it and this has happened from sub this is what i've kind of learned from other films that we worked on since then as well but especially this one was like um say um with with Mad Max, were we working the first time we were working on just on the first 10 minutes for this Warner Brothers kind of thing, like screening or feeling kind of thing. And um, it's it's almost kind of, it's sort of easy to do a, like a vehicle or say 
for 30 seconds within a 10 minute thing because you've often got enough material just to make that 30 seconds sound awesome or really easily to manipulate but then when you've got to carry that like a war rig not that i cut the war rig, but you've got to carry some sounds that you've made decisions on that the director's bought and really like and all of a sudden you realize i haven't seen the rest of the film yet and that war rig is non-stop driving pretty much from the beginning you know what i mean that is really hard that can be really really hard to go how do i make keep this making this interesting without it sounding repetitive there's technical things about how do I not make this car in the library? It's the 30 second bit of audio and like a whole bunch of different things combined. But how do I manipulate this in a way that I can run a war rig for a five minutes scene without you hearing repeats or the, the gear shifting doesn't make sense or that kind of thing. Um, and so when you're, when you approach designing character stuff like a vehicle and stuff like that, because in previous, in subsequent films, I've done a lot more character sort of items and taking on like a character for a film which is across six balls and you got to make that work is how do you the difficulty can be um not tying yourself into not having enough material or do you know what i mean it's 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 really tricky and for me um it was kind of i did um weaponry and bullets and gun folly like kind of stuff and so I was lucky because I got a lot of foley from the foley guys, but often that wasn't even. But that was maybe I'd say forty percent of the final sound for that foley item because it wasn't like um, it was very a real sound. Whereas often um, it needs to be heightened for like what George wants to hear, like say thumbs on stuff. Where a thumb on a from foley sounds like you know, and it's on a war rig how do you make that come through that thumb on the trigger or whatever or cocking back something come through without it actually just being a foley element so it's it's, it's hard because this is going back in my brain a bit and trying to think about how i approach and stuff like that um but i th- say for example i think um some of the trickier bits was probably the bullet farmer attack on the war rig where I had, um, there was perspectives I had to deal with because the, the bullet farmer was quite a while away in the fog and he's just shooting randomly and he gets blinded, all that kind of stuff. Um, and in that scene, I th- from memory, I think there was the, the sniper rifle scene on that thing. That was that was quite challenging because um, George wanted, his note was, I want to hear the bullet traveling away. And you're like, okay, but bullets travel very quickly. And often it's sort of like what you're used to hearing, I guess, not that I've, fired many weapons um you often you hear the reverberance coming back you that initial shot but i think with with some type of bullets as it travels it's breaking the sound barrier so you also hear those reflections coming back to you after the initial shot so there was a lot of like um for me was okay i've got to make the sweet kind of like big sniper rifle shot bit of tinnitus um, you know, loading it, loading it, putting it on Max's shoulders so it's heavy and it's sort of gritty and it's old because nothing's new, that kind of stuff. And a lot of the, like, if you go to libraries, especially in this country, because we don't have like a great um, sort of like ability to get access to a lot of weapons, just purely because we don't have them here. You uh, you do rely a lot on libraries or things that you can use that sound like um, guns, like you know, I think like um, some things like like uh, like pneumatic. Um, staple guns and stuff like that. they got great sliders and stuff which you can kind of trick to sound like weapons but 
it's a very distinct sound, especially with weapons. Like people know what those are just through watching films for years. Or if you're a gun person, you know what that sounds like. I did have a discussion one guy with an army guy about um, the sound of some bullets I did, uh, bullet shells hitting the floor in that water divider film. And he said they're the wrong caliber. I was like, well, you're the first person who picked up on that, but thank you. That was really, that was cool. But um, the, yeah, the sniper rifle was really cool because I had to design a way that I could have, um, of course, a big, big, almost like cannon-like explosion, but then uh, create its own um, tail of that sort of shot, which then I could use pitching and time manipulation to kind of bend it downwards as, as the bullet was sort of traveling away. But as I was doing that, also have... Um, rather than a, a plug-in doing uh, like a delay return with reverb and that kind of stuff for reflections, I was cutting in and designing my own reflections so I could offset them t- sort of slightly, but then also then decay those with a bit of a pitch down, all that kind of stuff. So then when the mixer gets it, it was like probably less work for them to come up with these really detailed sort of reflections that all slowly pitched slightly differently to get all those different delays back from the bullet traveling away. But um, also with a way that I could then go, we're not in a final situation, George, but this is what it should sound like when we get there without um, just doing a gunshot and going, oh, mixes, can you do the delays and reverb and stuff like that? He was able to hear finished sort of sequence for that gun and approve it, which was cool. Um, The other tricky parts in that was uh, with perspectives with guns, uh, with with the... the bullet farmer, he had like, I can't remember, I think he had like three or four different types of machine guns all firing off in, in distant perspectives. And then later he had like grenade launchers and stuff like that. But then you're cutting in a way that you're doing perspective, cutting between uh, Max and the Warwick's perspective, cutting back to the close-up on bullet farmers to be really aggressive and loud and like putting in little trigger sounds because that little tick you might not necessarily hear in the explosion, but it just adds something to your ear that you feel. Um, and this like, kind of makes it a bit more lethal than just a standard like here's a gunshot you, you, I th- like most of the most of the guns sh- like that scene i think from memory would have been or oh, easily like 700 tracks in the end because you're doing you're designing guns that are old but unique sounding but still tied to a real gun like if it was an mp5 or something or i think that's a gun uh um or a uh, ak-47 stuff like that but in a way that you can make it so big but still sound like a like a ak but like more like a cannon in your enveloping you so i think we're on were we seven one on that one yet five one one five one okay yeah. still five one yeah and then using sort of um the space to give you so like say if i um had a big close-up of a machine gun firing i do a lot of big work in the center tracks but then i'd also put like um tighter transient sounds in the surrounds just to give you a sense of it's louder so it'd be like really quick things in the surrounds just so without it actually being louder on the faders it just give you this oh my god it's 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 so loud it's all around me kind of sound and then you'd have uh the bullets just whizzing off so if he was shooting um uh, one side of the screen to the other you'd have as the bullets came out as well the thing that would go across the screen you'd have to pan all those individually so they'd be on individual tracks and then uh then you'd have perspective on those so if the bullet's going away you have a or if it's coming as it comes over your heart or if it's flying over your head past your ear and um what i found during it was that um but that's using a lot of plugins to manipulate those make because um 
a lot of times if you get real bullet passes like a crack rather than a cool whiz so using pitching and stuff like that but also time manipulation and stuff um but a lot of panning and there's so much gunshots happening in that thing because it's just just spraying the whole war rig with it so you have incoming and outgoing uh projectiles you have ones that come over your head and it might hit some sand or it might not be what I like to do when I'm doing bullets and stuff like that. I don't always like to be a clean whiz. I like to put something a bit dirtier in there. Like if it's coming past, I might put like a um, like a sparkler extinguishing into water as it so it gets as it's not just a clean something a bit dirtier. Or if it goes past your head, rather than it, you're just disappearing, I'll, I'll put a landing of that bullet which might hit a shrub than a piece of wood. So boom. Well, that kind of thing. So it's not this is clean, like with 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 kind of It's hitting things close to you, so the bullets are close. But then you can play with how close are they, and you can bring them in closer and bring them out closer. You can pan them behind you, or they landing in front of you to give you this like cacophony of like the bullets are everywhere around you, and you're just not getting hit or something like that. And then you got of course like what was the cool one? I think the one that took me a little while was getting the bullets hitting the the dead sort of tree is how do you get that kind of like cool, really big punchy impact, but like bits of bark flying off, but then it's like dog, 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 that kind of like hollowy wood sort of sound, stuff like that. Can't quite remember what I used for that, but it was probably like combinations of like two by fours and hitting them with hammers and all that kind of stuff. And yeah, but yeah, so like every bullet had a whiz and it had an impact in that whole scene. And then you've got the sniper fire returning and hitting the, um, the ripsaw on the way back and blinding the guy. So it's all that kind of stuff. Then you had, of course, a little bit later when he's blind and he's and, the, and they're going for it and the war rig's trying to come out and they start firing, um, I think it was grenade launchers and stuff like that. And then you have, you'll have, you'll have a, you know, the projectile coming in, which has to sound different to, a, to a, a bullet whiz, and then the explosions with dirt and debris flying past you and all that kind of stuff. And that stuff is what, 700 tracks for that scene from memory because detail, uh, Wayne's always very onto us about sort of like detail sort of sells it really. And it's not always about clean detail. Like that's why I like putting dirtier kind of things, not just straight whizzes. I put in bush hits or um, some cool sparklery kind of extinguishes or fireworky kind of things, just to give you a hint of something different each time. Or yeah, that kind of stuff. Or if it hits a piece of metal, it doesn't just go dunk. It goes dunk, and then there's obviously like bits of rust or something hitting the tank floor, that kind of stuff. So it's not a clean hit. It's always a bit dirty, which I think adds to the detail of making it more real in a sense because it's not a uniform sound every time it's something that you've definitely thought about to put in Wayne and Darren was there anything that you remember being extremely challenging um well I guess one of the things that I remember was going in and doing the crowd recordings and we had you know a few days just full crowd recordings so people in there screaming yelling all sorts of attacking happening it was full on and yeah I just remember um yeah being in that and I actually came out of that room and we went to go and have something to eat and I had to leave because I could hear everything it was all coming on me I completely wigged out just because we'd been focusing on it so much all that day (laughs) that's one of the stronger stronger memories I have of that was just coming out of that just going oh my gosh I can't I can't handle noise right now but um that because of the detail that was needed for the crowds as well like to tell the story and to help kind of build suspense and build you know the kind of the danger and everything it was you know we had to be very um 
yeah, very precise with that too. And to have a lot of people in the room to try and organise who is going to do what voice, who is going to be, you know, doing this, that and the next thing. Oh, hang on, there's a guy up in the background now that wasn't there before. You know, like uh, just kind of, yeah, ma- making sure that we covered everything that was needed to to kind of tell the story and make it, yeah, interesting and scary when it needed to be and, yeah. and all that stuff. I also think that uh, one of the biggest challenges too, you're asking um, these cast members in a in, in an environment, you know, in an 80-hour environment to to be precise on every utterance. So it's not just the words, the dialogue itself, all the breathing, all the grunting, all the movement, everything, you know, and uh, to to be faced with... Darren and I went to London to record uh, Tom Hardy, and what a champion because he totally got it. He totally knew that he was going to get a continuity of performance by recreating, even if he wasn't speaking English, but recreating a, 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 a sonic interpretation of what was happening through grunts and vox and breath and everything. And all the cast members, Charlie's the same, everybody had to do it. And that sort of precise detail, much like Andrew with the, with the bullets, which sounded like a simple scene to do, incredibly complex, incredibly complex to tell the story. And, and, uh, and it went to every breath as well. And um, I think that was probably one of the biggest challenges. And, to, and the cast were great because they bought into it. They, once, I'm sure it was a shock to them what they were going to have to physically re-perform, physically re-perform, uh, in a ADR stage, but they once you're in, what they 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 bought it, you know. So and that that went for the war boys and everybody. Uh, so, you know, it's like a lot of people might say they look at the film and go, ah, oh, there's no dialogue in that film or very little dialogue in that film. Well, when you start to break it down, it's months and months of recreation. Uh, in that sense, isn't it? Yeah, 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 and lots of recordings too. Um, and, you know, again, like we were saying, George is very particular with that stuff. So he, you know, um, during the recording, he'd, he'd push the actors to do quite a few takes and stuff just so that he'd get exactly what he was after. And, um, yeah, you know, all the performance of tro- Troopers, they all, all did it. But, um, you know, keeping track of that and then we'd have to, um, once we got it all, we had to, like I said before, we had to prep it all, break it down so that George could listen to it all, but we also had to transcribe it all so that George could go through and circle, you know, the stuff that he liked from each take and then kind of break that down again, listen to those again and kind of work through it that way to kind of get the exact performance that he was after. And, yeah, it's... um, you know, it's it's a lot of work, but um, yeah, it was it was kind of yeah our job to keep across all of that. And any time George made any kind of note about what he wanted, like um, yeah, it was I was just talking about this with Wayne before. There was I just remember this one in particular. I don't know why, but uh, Max and um, Furioso having the fight in the sand at the beginning. And he chucks a whole lot of, they're slightly, she's slightly off camera, but you can see that he chucks a whole lot of sand in her face. And in one of the briefings, George was saying, I really need to hear her coughing there. 
And then like months later, we went and recorded Charlize and, you know, I'd made a note in the cue sheets that we had to have her coughing there and all that sort of stuff. So we were able to get, you know, everything that we needed um, just based on kind of, yeah, making sure we were meticulous in listening to George's notes and having those with us for every recording because we couldn't keep all of them in our head. We had to have them with us, like, yeah, because we'd be recording people months after he'd made the note. Um, yeah, and just kind of... And that's why Darren is my hero. Oh, man. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> and Darren, you can go to Darren and go like, oh, that film in, was it two, Happy Feet 2, and uh, Happy Feet 1 in 2006, that scene, she went, ah, scene 36, and you're like, yeah. Oh, that, she just has this ability to do that. But I, I was watching um, this Netflix show like a couple of nights ago one. about Roman, uh, it's like Roman Empire thing, and I just turned it on for like the first 10 minutes, and there's like this epic, you know, the Romans against the Horde or whatever fight, and I'm sitting there with Brie, my wife, and watching this thing, and I'm like, oh, this is pretty cool like that. And then after a while, I was like, man, there's like 12 people in this whole sequence, but the crowds were the only. They just I was completely sold into it before I went. Hang on a sec, because I often go, how do they do this? And then you go, wait, there's only like 12 people here. Like the backgrounds, you'd be lucky if you had two or three people fighting, but the crowds in the audio completely sold it as this massive battle. And I think that's like, like, uh, I, not that I would go, oh, I never thought of that before. But that was like, I was like, that's like one of those prime examples of like the power of crowds, which you don't necessarily ever pinpoint when watching a film, but like they're everywhere when you do, and they are so important. I think, and that's from an effects person who doesn't do dialogue. Like you, like sometimes like you, the stuff that comes out of crowds, like, and it's sometimes like not just on this film. Sometimes I've seen that where you'll just have like a really one of the crowd guys who is just amazing and he'll pop something out and that just spurs all these ideas. It's really cool. But yeah. that's that. Yeah. But that was a really cool example. Of yeah. how Crowd, crowds are very much underutilized yeah. and thought about. Yeah. Uh, but certainly uh, uh, from a story point of view, they can lend so much power and so much emotion. Cause yeah. I feel like if it was done badly, then uh, it would just emphasize how few background people you can actually see and it would just emphasize the fact like damn they've only got like 12 people in this scene it'd just make it worse wouldn't it but like if it's done well i suppose it actually sells it yeah i think i think it's like if it's done really well you probably don't even notice that there's only 12 i guess in the end you don't notice it like it was it was meant to be like the CGI was these two like thousand men armies hitting, and then when they got into the close-ups, it was there was yeah. would have been lucky to be twelve people there, but yeah. you didn't. But the continuity of the crowds from other war, you know, the two armies coming in that was there it set it up from the yeah. beginning, and that's what was really powerful because you saw the CGI crowds and you went, I believe that because yeah. of the the sound of it, and then you get into the close-ups and it's just it just smoothed out the whole action as well. Yeah, well, just not not sort of getting too much off. Uh, point, but uh, I will say this about uh, what, what you were talking about with the guns before, and what was was it difficult, and what was something memorable, and one thing or another t- in order to do. Uh, uh, so, as you're aware, the um, when uh, myself and the team uh, here at Big Bang all came onto the picture, um, you know, at that point it was like, okay, here we are. What is our brief? What, 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 what would you like us to deal with? The brief came back. Uh, we want you to do all the vehicles and all the weapons. And I kind of 
uh, and real dollars. back and forth, isn't that the movie? Okay. <laughs> now, clearly, there's a lot more than just that, but that was the, that was the directive. So here's the good news is because when we saw the number of vehicles and the concept that, which, as I said, went way back to 2006, 2004, whatever it was, uh, prior to there uh, being any concept that there will be music aside from the Duffwagon in the film, there was going to be no music, is that we knew that, that these, every vehicle had to be a character in the film and had to be representational to the actual character themselves, be it the bullet farmer with the ripsaw, uh, be it um, uh, Immortan Joe in his Bigfoot thing. Yeah, and then um, you had the people leader. Uh, the people leader and all those things. So you knew that each, each, each vehicle had to be representational to the character that was driving them as found items, you know, in a post-apocalyptic world and to have a unique sound. When I heard Ben Osmo's recordings from set, yes, dialogues were hard to capture. Of course they are. It was never going to be an easy situation unless those vehicles were stopped. But what Ben did for us was one of the most enormous uh, uh, gifts from that film, which was the vehicle recordings, both in its detail whilst shooting uh, main unit or whether it was offstage collection of each of these vehicles um, in between takes or, or off, off, uh, you know, in his downtime. Um, when I heard the amount of recordings he had done for every vehicle and the uniqueness of the recordings, I went to George and said, here's the good news, is that Ben's material is going to lay the foundations to 70% of what we need to do on top of that in order to give the, the, that extra character. So for without Ben's team uh, doing that material, it would have been one of the most difficult jobs in sound effects, hands down. Here's the other problem. And I had a long talk with George about this, about the vehicles themselves. Most vehicles in most film, in film language, uh, tend to, uh, uh, in, uh, in chase sequences, tend to run up against obstacles. So if you're looking at a James Bond movie or you, 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 any of these sort of car chase, whether it's um, Bullet or any of these sort of movies, it's about tire squeals. It's about, uh-oh, here comes the old lady with the pram. Downshift. So you've got, that, you've got that excitement to build upon an engine. In Mad Max Fury Road, you had a straight road. There are no obstacles. So you are roaring along a straight line and on desert. So you can't put tyre squeals in. You can't put any of the normal uh, filmic devices uh, in terms of a chase sequence at all. You've got an, an armada of, I don't know, 100 vehicles roaring down. Thankfully, we had the doof wagon, which is going to give us extra colour with the guitarist. But ultimately, you had a storm uh, like an absolute hurricane of vehicles. That's one side of it. Then you had the war rig, which was one vehicle going straight. <laughs> that, I would say, was probably the biggest challenge yeah. to sell that. Kind of leads into another question I was going to ask. Um, Matt, something that 
struck me when I first saw the film was just how relentless it is. It doesn't stop. It's just nonstop action. How do you... And any film needs to have uh, crescendos and shifts in energy and stuff. How do you manage to do that when it's just a constant bombardment of the senses? Well, well, you can see the result. In, no. <laughs> uh, well, I think um, I think that goes back to George's incredible mind and incredible detail and and in, and an understanding that every shot has its purpose, and every shot then will hand over to the next story intent. So the dynamic of any given vehicle chase or or uh, skirmish that might be happening was not about uh, pulling away necessarily the sound of the vehicles. The vehicles were a roaring entity, always. But what it did was it, 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 you, you shaved, you just shaved through the, the sonic assault by hitting each of those very specific story elements. And that detail, it might only be across 10 frames, leads to the next detail which tells you what the story was actually evolving to in any given any given sequence i think that's the best way i could describe it george wasn't into if you cut to a vehicle that was at you know uh, optimum level and there it is roaring along and then when you cut away from that vehicle normally you would lower the off stage of that very same vehicle when you've cut away with it not in this film George wanted to keep the sound of that vehicle if it was within uh, the right sort of, you know, presence, continually there. So the 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 actual sonic assault uh, was pretty terrifying to deal with in a in a mixed sense. Uh, it always worried me, even in a in a uh, an audience sense, how they were going going to find the specific details but he managed to do it and it's really all George's design you know that in 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 we would normally would cut away from that engine and give the and hand over to the next engine that was but not in this case would you like to add to that yeah I remember one that the one that really stuck out with me with that it's so funny when when Wayne talks I'm like that's right I remember this was all coming back but I remember the one that really stuck out me was um uh was it were they Valkyries? Was that what the yeah yeah? Uh, Is it the Megan the Gal? Volvolinis. Volvolinis. Valkyries. Volvolinis. <laughs> what a word. Um, <laughs> uh, Megan Gale's character, and she comes up next to uh, is it a Morton Joe or yes. something? She tries to take the sniper shot, and she's yeah. on the back of that motorbike. Yeah. And I remember from George, like he's saying, "I need to hear that bike pull away, go right the way back around the war rig." And this is through the surround speakers and stuff like that to then make sense of where it is in the next shot. And you hear that in the film. Like he was like, I need to hear that motorbike pull away and go around. And normally, like Wayne said, like there's maybe 20, you know, maybe eight other shots maybe between those two points. And he needs it to, you need to make sense of that bike being making those maneuvers to make sense of when it pulls back to that next shot. And I think um, there's a crash or whatever it happens and she comes off. That was another tricky one for weapons, actually, because when she comes off and starts using that old Remington 
to take pot shots at was it Morton Joe? Yeah, yeah, that was cool. Yeah. Well, I think what it does is, is George is very, very uh, with with a, with a chaotic sort of film like this. It, it, geography was very, very important because, yeah. and if you could use uh, sound to uh, to hear that motorbike still present, you don't know where. Oh, it started it, and it's moving. You may not hear it moving through the speakers, but it is still present. Mm. So you know, even though there might be another eight to ten shots within the infrastructure of that sequence. That bike is still in existence. Yeah. That so so the geography of the layout of the uh, uh, the infrastructure of the scene itself helps the audience know where they are as you're cutting away or or whatever, which I think was is very unique. Yeah. You know, using sound when you've got a flat desert, flat road, how is the geography between all these vehicles and the action that is taking place uh, actually yeah. clear? clear to the audience like where we are and what is happening using the vehicles yeah. as landmarks and using the vehicles as landmarks using sound as as a as a, a, a as geography which i thought was extraordinary yeah yeah was it um so it sounds like a lot of that is uh making the audience unconsciously aware of the physical layout of what's happening Exactly. But without them really noticing. Exactly. And is it difficult to uh, subconsciously influence an audience when you're having to stare at a screen, like listen intently, and you're concentrating on it and that's your job? Is it difficult to get out of that mindset and think, how can I make this subtle enough that it's not in their face? I think, like, for me, um, that took a few years to be able to turn your brain off, sort of like that. Like, like for a long time, we used to go home and watch movies and just and hear it, if you know what I mean. Like, actually hear it and go, oh. And now I can sit down and just watch them, which is kind of cool. So I think it's a learn... For me, it was a learn experience kind of thing to be able to just switch off when you have to. And I think that's really important um, for character stuff as well because a lot of that character stuff's subtle, if you know what I mean, um, unless it's like a forty-foot mech or something, but yeah, um, yeah, that's that's my take on that kind of thing, anyway. Um, so, how much? Do you remember how much of the the vehicle production sound you actually used? And do you remember like how how much was actually delivered to you? Like, did it take a while to listen through all that sound? Oh yeah. Well, like I said before, seventy percent of those vehicles are like uh, production sound. So the the the, the embodiment of each yeah. vehicle. And I remember um, when that when we first were on and that all came in as the basically straight off the field recorder, um, and the effects team and I think some of the dial guys might have helped out. Where we had to sit down and then go, all right, you take four of the vehicles, you take four of the vehicles, and. Ben, it was the way it was all laid up with Ben. It was quite easy to grab that stuff out because he's meticulous. Um, and then we sat down, and that's where it was really, really exciting because, like those the the um, the buzzards at the beginning with the the spiky cars, that stuff, that's that's that sound of all those changes in the gear shifts and the and the turbochars and all that kind of stuff. That is that is purely what was recorded on set. Those cars sound like that. And when we pulled that off in those first, um, when we were doing that first 10 minute kind of thing, 
that was that saved so much time but it was so cool it was so unique and then you go oh let's have a listen to the ripsaw and you pull that thing up and that's a weapon absolutely like it's like one of the fastest tracked vehicles in the world and it's the 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 the, just the tones that come out of that thing was so exciting because you're like there is so much to work with because it's nothing like like if you got if you pulled up and go okay they recorded the you know the 96 magna sedan for us here and you pull up and go it's a normal engine it's very you know they've designed not to be loud there's not many tonal things that you can manipulate as far as when you get into designing and really with plugins and all that kind of stuff getting into the and getting into the grid of it and pulling out what you can of those recordings these things were turning up and you're like there is so much clarity um or um uh, uh, variety in how they recorded like the buzzards where there's an internal mic or there would have been one on the exhaust or there's a whole bunch on the turbos inside the engine you're not dealing with you're dealing with the elements of the car that when you play back you go that's the sound of the car but now i have eight tracks or sometimes 16 tracks where I can dig into each of those elements that make up that sound. So if there's a shot and it comes across the bonnet, you've got stuff that you can manipulate to bring out the turbo more and give you perspectives as a camera moves over a car, uh, around the back, around the front, over top, or inside the cabin. You've got those that ability to grab that meat and potatoes 70% or with the buzzers was a lot more. Um, that was so exciting because you were just like, one, it's going to save us a lot of time. But two, it already gives you an idea of how to approach, say, a sound or something like that, because it's real, and that yeah. was really cool. Well, there's also then, then, then obviously on top of that, you're layering uh, uh, design other things, elements. yeah, yeah, a lot as of well. Elements, so. It's like I remember there was a shot, uh, a shot at the front of the war rig where the camera pulls across the front of the grill as it's as it's travelling forward, and the camera just moves straight across, and it's got these skulls at the front. And uh, Mario Gabrielli, one of the one of the sound effects editors on the film, was working on the war rig, war rig at that time, and we talked about what what would be cool to come from the from the grill itself. And we played with a few ideas, and we ended up by using um, Tibetan monks, uh, basically uh, doing a, a, a song, the Gregorian chant, uh, like yeah. And so across it, you it's subtle, but you hear those skulls talking. As it goes across the front of it, you, hey, and it's still there yeah. now. Yeah. <laughs> but even every like, time I see that, I go, yeah, those t- Tibetan monks. <laughs> like e- even like location recordings where you'd have dialogue and there'd be some of the like weapon blanks and stuff like that. Like that stuff when I was doing um, the firearms, that stuff was so important because um, often the the mics are a lot closer than the camera. So for me to and sometimes the pictures you're working on. Uh, weren't like a you know a full hd quality rip off the off the cameras you're working on something's been crushed down so that it's manageable within the programs and you lose you can lose a lot of the detail and sometimes um they'll have to later add like muzzle flashes in because sometimes just when they're filming it can almost like the flashes can be out of um the shutter so you can miss a flash every now and then but with the recordings that ben was doing and some of them I was using for like distant gunfire and all that kind of stuff at the end because it just sounded really cool. Um, that was able to actually tell me, okay, this gun's on full auto, but it looks like it's on a semi-automatic sort of like, or a burst. And I was like, no, but the recordings didn't tell me it's on full auto. That was so amazing because I could get the proper timing 
to track more beefy gunshots to um that was amazing that the, and some of them yeah fantastic even even for like just a, a boomy or a, a lapel mic and maybe ben stuck up i'm guessing like or someone else's mic in a worry and i was able to hear that and go well that's that sounds great i mean it's a blank but i might be able to use that in like one of the biggest scenes just to fill the surrounds up mm-hmm. but uh yeah the timing of stuff because yeah, a lot, a lot of the time um, the action would be so quick that sometimes you wouldn't, or the gun would pull out and it's it's out of focus in the corner of the frame and it's firing, but I can use the timing of the location audio to actually sync the real, like what I would do to it afterwards, which was cool. So how do you guys know when a soundtrack is like lacking or complete, especially when on a film like as complex as Fury Road? Uh, I think I think I think you you know as you're working on each element, you know you like for example I was doing I did all the pre-dubs for the atmospheres or for the backgrounds as is also known, and every cut had a different wind, for example, D- different desert environment, different wind, different travelling. Uh, uh, thing or whether it's a different tone in in the valleys or whatever so as as generally speaking i use the the backgrounds as a way to set the world and if that's lacking or if there's a fallout within that area i know that we're going to fall into a hole so that's the sort of area that i work on quite a lot because it actually helps the dialogues and the crowds set into the world number one Prior to the fact that then you get the foley and of course all the sound effects, I think I think um, you're never really gonna know the answer to that question until it all comes together. Particularly on the size of film this in this is with um, uh, dramas and, and something a little less complex. I think you can anticipate and get it prior to the final mix, but on a, on a film like this, and the fact that the music was still under development. Uh, throughout the process of post-production, you weren't entirely sure what space you were going to be left with within the, the sonic environment itself. So you you kind of, you know, hold on to your hat and, and, and you think where you're covered, you're good to go, but not necessarily is going to be the case all the time, where you're going to have to go off and you're going to have to do uh, additions and, 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 you know, ads to, to cover it if, uh, you know... If there is a hole, or if there, it's not completely what you'd hoped it was going to be, you know. So you always every film is is going to have those areas that needs attention, without question. I found like as an, as a not a holistic overview, um, almost every film like there's, there's always more you could probably do. Um, and it's sometimes frustrating because you're like, oh, if I had another couple of weeks, I could have done this so much better or you know the idea came really late and i had to get it out because i needed it kind of thing so for me it never uh, very rarely uh, across a whole film i feel like i've really finished although to everyone else it's probably like yeah that's awesome it's good but personally it's always like oh if i had a little bit more time but i think that's the same with a lot of things and probably like with music as well i reckon writing a song like music is scored you you could there's never. I think you just have to work to that. But I also think it's uh, extraordinary too when you uh, within the infrastructure of the entire film. If you think you've got pl- that, well, there's plenty. It's telling the story. There's plenty of material there, covering a certain a certain 
uh, 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 sequence and it will take somebody to say, oh, there's a bit of a hole there. And you go, really? And you go, oh, okay, well, what could we try? Let's try to, let's try to, if there's a hole, I, I wasn't aware of it. But if someone feels that there's a hole, there's something to be, something to sort of to pay attention to. And strangely enough, when you fill that hole, whether it be with crowd or whether it would be a, an extra raising of the engine or whether it's uh, 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 more dialogue utterance and more sort of screaming or whatever it might be in that circumstance, it's surprising how if somebody feels it, there's generally a reason that, and you've got to try and find where, is there really a hole? Well, hey, let's try it. You fill it and all of a sudden you realise you were right. There is. And now it's a cohesive uh, event without too much of a dynamic or whatever it might have been for any given circumstance. Yeah, so it's, it's an interesting thing that it, it's evolving, you know, and it's iterative a lot, in a lot of cases where you try one thing and then it's like, oh, that didn't work, so you try something else and then how about we add this and what if we did this to it? And a lot, a lot of soundtracks uh, uh, like picture editing, uh, you know, they're, they're iterative processes a lot of the time to find what you're really uh, hoping for or what what it may need. Mm. One of those things that I think being a part of a team at Big Bang, like um, we all, you know, we all completely trust each other and we all know that everyone's going to be taking care of their set assignments. And so when, you know, we're watching the film run through for the first time, Wayne will sort of say, all right, you know, this car is going to Rick or this, you know, plane or whatever is going to Miller and you know this horse is going to Fabian and so we all know that if wherever that horse comes on screen Fabian's got it covered if ever you know those elements come on you know whoever is in charge of that or whoever has been assigned that is yeah they're going to cover it so we know that you know everything's covered everything's going to have a sound everything's going to be there but yeah sometimes when you put it all together you just yeah it, it takes seeing it all together to to know that oh it'd be nice if we had you know yeah like Wayne said a, a crowd or, or some something else going on there just to kind of up the ante or to or you know even to pull focus or to strip it back or to strip it back yeah as well strip it back we've done too much here now we've got to be more focused yeah. hit it and quit it sort of situation yeah yeah, yeah. so it, I think yeah it's one of those things where we can go into it confidently knowing that everything's got something but it's then in the mix how you kind of work that material to get it sounding the way it does once the music comes in as well and everything too. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Cool. Well, last question. Um, what do you guys think is lacking from the Australian film industry and what do you think needs to be done to help change it? Uh, look, I think I think uh, I think there's just got to be ultimately a broader understanding of what sound can do for um, storytelling in, in both film, television. You know, I think that uh, those uh, filmmakers uh, we've been lucky enough to have worked with, um, generally speaking, have a very broad understanding that uh, sound is probably the most inexpensive part of the process with the biggest returns. Uh, I think that that concept alone, to, to, to try to 
uh, impart onto young filmmakers as they're writing their, their, their scripts and they're, they're finding ways to tell their story. Um, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be the expensive option. Sound can do uh, so much more. As you've probably seen, you know, people will forgive bad pictures. People will not forgive bad sound, you know, um, so as an audience. So I think that, I think that gen- a general uh, education in, in, in what sound can offer is, in terms of story, is uh, one of my, uh, and certainly all of us here at Big Bang, want to try to, you know, educate more. I think second to that, uh, the, the, the support of the, of the funding bodies need to understand that for Australian soundtracks, and I'm a massive supporter of, of a domestic film and our stories, uh, I want to see more and more of those stories be equal to, to the stuff that comes from other parts of the world. And I think that we need a bit of support for that because what is slowly happening is budgets are shrinking, um, uh, therefore crews are affected, there, are, there is less employment, and unfortunately what happens is, is the new younger people coming up through the industry are getting left by the wayside. Uh, I'm seeing um, assistant editors, assistant sound editors, being completely taken off budgets. That, that is the most terrifying thing uh, that I can consider. We always bring on assistants on our films because that is the future. As we're getting older, we're gonna, otherwise we're going to lose an industry. We will not be able to, to maintain any sort of integrity on the world stage. So that's the, my biggest uh, uh, flag bearer at the moment is, is support. So when, when young people are coming out of these educational facilities, that they do have a future. And right now, I'm really, really scared of it because budgets are shrinking, time is shrinking, crews are shrinking. Mm. Assistant, like new people coming in, assistants and stuff like that also bring sort of like a re-injection of um, knowledge. Like yes. you'd be surprised what like younger people are Absolutely. coming straight up because they're, I mean, I, I was at one point, I, I loved to read about as much as I could about everything that was happening in new technology and new processes and all that kind of stuff. But the more you move in away from assisting into being an editor, the less time you kind of have to, to sit down and figure those things out. So you start, like if you, if you can, you do it in your off time and stuff like that, but it's not the same as sitting down and having it in front of you and figuring it out at the same time. And when um, you get younger assistants come in, they've had recent training, or they've more they've, they are really you know excited or about particular areas. They bring that new knowledge in to share with the experience that you get from um, the older or more experienced editors um, who don't have that time to put back into learning. I mean, the the, the rate it changes with Soundpost is phenomenal. I mean, to you know, for when we did this film. 2014 uh was 5.1 i think then the next film had to be 7.1 and now you've got to do atmos and there's vr and ar and man it is crazy how quickly it moves and you you, we we, i mean we do keep up with it um but it's not the same as someone new coming in who has a completely different background 
uh, and going, I, you, I'm a, you know, I don't know, I'm a drum and bass producer. Like I love drum and bass and there's these great plugins that you guys probably never heard of. You should have a look at them because they're really good at X, Y, Z. And you go, I'll have a look at that. And that helps you go, this is sweet. This is, I love that stuff. And this is really useful information that, um, yeah, I think you only get from sort of new people coming in I agree. and a new perspective. And Well, yeah. I'm going to throw to Darren as well on this one because uh, I think a lot of the uh, educational facilities that uh, uh, train in this sort of area uh, do overlook dialogue. And I find that it's one of the most difficult parts of a, of a soundtrack is, is dialogue editing the most precise, the most important. And nobody seems to want to come out and learn and be the dialogue editor. And frankly, that is uh, uh, very much we're we're lacking in this country of people who have a passion for that. I'm going to throw to Darren here because you're talking to probably one of the best in the country, uh, I think, in the world. And, And... I would I would say that for uh, for a young person not to be rubbing a bit of Darren magic <laughs> is is is, uh, is 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 quite it's it's it saddens me to see that uh, you know that we're not pushing that angle as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I you know like you know I went to afters and you know I did my course and everything there, but to be honest. Most of the stuff that I've learned doing this job has been from being here at Big Bang, learning from Wayne, learning from Sonal, Joshi, who um, we've worked with, you know, for years. and um, Learning and, from George. And learning from George. Baz Luhrmann, Bill Bennett. Yeah, like, you know, being here on, on productions and being with people who share the same passion and who also have that experience that they can show you, oh, if you want to, you know, clean the, this dialogue up here, like this is what we're looking to to do. This is ways that you can do it. You can find alternatives. You can do, and they show you all their tricks and you know um, approaches to things, how they lay things out, all that sort of stuff. I've learnt on the job, and it's you know it's invaluable. And the thought of not having assistance coming on. And being able to learn that stuff from from us is it's terrifying and it's really sad too because it, it's you know it is an art form that I think needs to be you know protected and needs to be you know passed on because it's um, yeah like it, yeah it's just um, such an important part of the soundtrack as well yeah like, I'm always like if you can't understand it then why'd you shoot it. In, in a yeah. sense, yeah. when it comes down to that, like, why did you spend the money on everyone if you can't understand the dialogue? Yeah, and yeah. and directors are also, that's one of the things that they want protected as well. Like, that's one of their kind of main focuses is protect the performance. Like, you know, if we can't use the sync for technical reasons, then, you know, know how to cut ADR, know how, like, when you're recording it, know what to listen for. It's not necessarily you know like so many actors sort of come in and think that they have to match their lips on screen and it's like no no no. listen listen to the rhythms because that's what's going to get you the performance you're looking for don't don't look at the picture 
just listen and listen to the rhythm because that is what, you know, that's where the sort of, yeah, performance lies and it's also, you know, how you can recreate whatever you've got on screen. If if that's, you know, it, that's the performance that you want, you can recreate it as long as you listen and as long as people who, you know, I think my music background helps me with that is that I can hear the cadence in the in the thing and so I can pick from different takes and stuff and get something that matches what they've done on on screen and it takes time but it's worth it and directors you know more often than not will use it if it's it's close and that kind of yeah attention to detail you know yeah it's something that you learn from watching other people do it or you know someone you know coming in and looking at your work and saying why don't you try this if it's not working and yeah it's yeah we need we need assistance we need more yeah young people coming in as always thanks to jd legulon for music and sound design if you have any feedback or want to chat about the podcast uh email me at contact at soundperspectivepodcast.com or feel free to follow me on Instagram, which is Alfie Faber Sound. You can see about my various creative things and endeavors there. Catch you next time. I love you.